Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 32 and reading through verse 11 of chapter 5. Hear now God's Word. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, uh, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife's wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And thus far the reading of God's Word, and all God's people said, You may be seated. When we read a story in the Bible, and there are many of them, that uh, shock us, alarm us, uh, and uh, cause us to pause or grimace, we, rather than running and hiding or avoiding or being embarrassed about it, we should take the opportunity to understand it. It's here for a reason. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's given to us to teach us some things. Perhaps we're not looking at things the way we should. Perhaps our view of the world, perhaps our view of the church, perhaps our view of God is tainted in some way. We have a softer view or a, or a a view that is not consistent, for example, with God's holiness or with our sin. And I think this text today will reveal some of that to us. In our story, Peter is learning some lessons that he will later write about in his 
first epistle, for example, he admonished, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, as soon as big things started to happen in the church, Satan launched a counterattack, and he began that with persecution. Outside forces put pressure on the church and tried to silence her message. Remember, the apostles were arrested, or some of them were, and threatened and told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. But the devil, and yes, I do believe that Satan is real, the devil launched his second attack on the church from within. The communion of the saints is devastating to his cause, and therefore he is always seeking to wreck the communion. He does that at your house, and he does that in the church. Because separation is death. Over the years, he really hasn't changed his tactics, and so we really shouldn't be taken by surprise. So when the first dramatic case of hypocrisy shows up in Ananias and his wife Sapphira, God did not allow it to spread. His judgment was swift, and it was public. This was the first case of church discipline. We tend to wince over even mild church discipline. When someone separates themselves from the church, when they want nothing to do with the church, when they just disappear, if the church speaks up, then very quickly others are concerned that you're kicking people out. Well, God had no problem kicking someone out. Uh, and, and, the, and, and when we understand the reasons why, that is the peace, the purity, the prosperity, and the power of the church is at stake. That sometimes when we are kinder than God, we face the consequences of that in the church, in our families, and in the world. This section... Uh, So this section begins in verse 32 with a description of the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's communion, right? They uh, This is a fundamental solidarity of love. This love, which always involves personal sacrifice, will be made manifest through their sharing of their economic resources. Um, But I want to note that the Bible has many other places where it gives us instructions on economics. For one example, in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is, his own household, especially those of his own household, then he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Luke already stated in chapter 2, verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. And now in chapter 432, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul, neither did anyone say that anything of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Whatever these words, all things in common, mean, we know that they don't mean that the believers literally renounce the concept of private property or ownership. 
The passage has been used to press for a form of communism, but that is pressing way too far. This has nothing in common with the theories of Karl Marx. So they weren't selling the roofs over their heads because they then would have nowhere to meet or to live. In Acts 2, after they had distributed wealth, they continued to meet in each other's homes. Later, we see Paul, Paul assumes that the believers in Corinth have houses to eat and drink in. While they owned certain property, they made their property available to fellow believers who had legitimate needs. John Calvin points out, quote, the goods were not divided up equally, but a careful distribution was made so that no one was oppressed by poverty. They went so far as in verses 34 and 35, where we read, all uh, who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. So the selling of the property was voluntary, not compulsory, and should not be viewed as an inherent criticism of wealth. Wealth enables more giving. Moreover, the distribution was based upon legitimate need. Uh, Scripture is emphatic regarding this principle. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies, Now those who are such we command and exhort together uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So legitimate need was the criteria for distribution. And I think many churches, including this one, have followed this principle with generous giving to legitimate needs. Being of one heart and soul means more than simply theological agreement. What people do with their money speaks loudly as to what kind of community they are. This love means bearing one another's burdens in very practical ways. Gary North once said that we need a bumper sticker that says, Love the Lord thy God with all thy money. And that kind of captures the rest of it, right? So these Christians loved each other deeply. They had a common concern for one another, both spiritually and materially. Now remember, at this point, there are probably around 30,000 Christians in Jerusalem in a matter of just a few months. So now imagine the entire population of Nacogdoches has cropped up suddenly. How many needs are there in our city? There's all kinds of people. All kinds of people in desperate need. And um, and so what begins to happen very quickly, uh, most of these people were relatively poor. 
as Paul would observe later in 1 Corinthians 1, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things, uh, to put to shame uh, the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to naught nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so Luke is now going to illustrate what was going on uh, with two very different examples. First, we have Joseph, who is also known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas was his nickname. He was so well known for encouraging people, for being generous, for giving of himself and giving of his material being, that he got a nickname. He was a Levite, that is, he was a member of the tribe of Levi, from which came the minor officials of the temple. The priests themselves were descendants of Aaron and one family within the tribe of Levi. Barnabas, we're told, having sold, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he is an example of sacrificial giving for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ. This, we're told, is the fruit of the great grace that was upon them all. God's favor. And now God's favor is being demonstrated through his people. Second is the contrasting story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, which is found in the first part of Acts chapter 5, where we read that great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard, heard this story about Ananias and Sapphira. You see, the New Testament church had its sinners as well. Satan was at work both inside and outside the church. Now, there seems to be some parallel between the stories of Ananias in the New Testament and Achan in the Old Testament. You'll recall that Achan stole money and clothing after the destruction of Jericho. In both stories, the act of deceit, of which Satan is an expert, disrupts the victorious progress of God's people. On the face of it, it looked like Barnabas and Ananias did the same thing. They had property, they sold it, they brought the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles for distribution. But the devil is in the details. Barnabas brought all the proceeds and Ananias held back some for himself. Ananias and Sapphira had every right to give a portion of the proceeds since it was voluntary giving of what we might call a free will offering. Peter would say that their property was their own, both before and after the sale of the property. You owned it before you sold it, it was yours, and after you sold it, it was yours. But the problem comes in their deceit. Luke uses the Greek word, which means to misappropriate. 
It's the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe Achan's theft. In other words, they were guilty of stealing. But if we dig a little deeper, we see that there, as sin often comes in clusters, there was a sin underneath the sin of theft, and that was hypocrisy. It wasn't just that they lacked honesty, bringing only part of the sale price, but that they lacked integrity, bringing only part while pretending to bring the whole. They were... They were misers, they were thieves, and they were liars. They wanted prestige. They wanted the credit for sacrificial giving and generosity without the inconvenience of it. Their motive in giving was not so much to help the poor, but rather to inflate their own prestige, their own egos. Look at me. Now, Ananias and Sapphira were not the first to rob God. Malachi, last book in our Old Testament, chapter 3, God brings an indictment against all the people of Israel, and he says this, Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, God says, even this whole nation. And then he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So Peter, looking behind the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, in this case, initially Ananias, saw the hypocrisy of Ananias as well as the subtle activity of Satan. Luke doesn't record any response from Ananias to Peter's question. What he does record is that Ananias dropped dead. This isn't the first time in the Bible where God's judgment was instantaneous. Think of us who reached out to touch the ark. Nadab and Abihu, Korah's rebellion against Moses and several others. Can you imagine the fear that came upon those who saw this or heard about it? Some of the young men wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, the event repeats itself with Sapphira, the wife of Ananias. She was asked the same question by Peter, and she revealed her duplicity in the matter. Peter pointed out that they had conspired to test the Spirit of the Lord. The results were the same, and she too dropped dead, and she was then buried by her husband. And for the second time, Luke refers to the fact in verse 11 Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And so Luke makes it clear that this was a work of divine judgment. So I want us to consider four lessons from these events. 
First, this happened because of the gravity or the serious nature of their sin. You see, they thought, uh, they thought they had a secret account. But one thing we can, we should all learn and remember is God knows all of our secret places. I used to have some secret places when I was a kid. Actually had one at the school I went to, the flagpole, the base of the flagpole, there was, there were metal rings and you could lift one of them a little bit and you could hide things under there. I had one in a friend's attic. You could pull up a board and you could hide things in there. And I want to ask you, what are you hiding in your secret places? God sees everything, even what we keep in secret. Numbers 32 says, be sure your sins will find you out. Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie to Peter, the apostle, but they couldn't lie to God. The Bible does say that the love of money is the root of all evil, or all sorts of evil. Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit, faking an image of generosity. And so we need to abandon our image management and care more about the reputation of Jesus Christ and the good of others. They had also disrupted the fellowship of the church by their falsehood. So you, you and I, we don't get to sin in isolation. When we sin, it affects everybody. It's true at your house, and it's true in the church. We're connected. There was sin in the camp, and that affects the whole camp. In the case of Achan, he took the accursed things, and this brought God's wrath against the entire community as they experienced a deadly defeat in the battle of the weak little city of Ai. Oh, we don't need to take the whole army over there. This will be a day trip. Oh, yeah? Not if the Lord says otherwise. He can trip you up easily. It was only after Achan had been singled out and killed that the blessing of victory returned. Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of making a promise to the Holy Spirit because they wanted the reputation that it would bring to them in the church. They wanted to look like generous Christians while not keeping their word. Matthew 6, 1 through 18, Jesus had already spoken to this, right? Jewish leaders sought to do good works in order to receive the praise and recognition of other people. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There is an older word that we don't use much which captures this, and that word is vainglory. And it means excessive or ostentatious pride, especially in one's achievements. We all take membership vows before God and before the church. For example, to quote... We've all 
Every one of us as a member of this church have pledged to, quote, support this congregation by your prayers, attendance, tithing, and labor. We made that promise, not just to each other, but to God. That was an oath. That was a vow. That was a commitment. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. We make promises to the Holy Spirit. So, we shouldn't underestimate the seriousness of sin. Second, we should also notice the malevolence of Satan. Peter says to Ananias that Satan has filled your heart. Luke records a similar description in Luke 22.3, then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot. Satan's objective is to disrupt our communion by any means. He all, he's always looking for a foothold. Remember in Ephesians 4.27 when he warns us in our communication with each other not to give the devil a foothold, a place. He always seeks to separate us from one another, which is a form of death. And that's why God's going to tell us when there's sin in the camp and it's unrepented of, and it's blatant, remove the evil man from among yourselves. Because if you keep him there and he won't repent, then it's going to spread and it's going to disrupt and it's going to destroy. It's going to destroy in attitude. It's going to destroy in other ways, in relationships. A third lesson we should take from this regards the holiness of God. J.I. Packer says, The holiness of God signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him the object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. We have such low views of God now. He's the man upstairs. No, he's the almighty, holy God that no one can look upon and live. The church was like the Old Testament temple here here in Acts as the church is getting started. It was a place of holiness. The temple itself contained warnings uh, uh, to anyone approaching who was unfit to do so. Only the priest could go into the inner court and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year and that was after he'd taken all kinds of precautions. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us about King Uzziah infringing the sanctuary and being struck down with leprosy. We tend, again, to have pretty low views of sin, especially our own sins. So why then were Ananias and Sapphira put to death for their actions? Aren't we all guilty of the same sins of lying and hypocrisy? Why aren't we punished with a death sentence? Well, the short answer is the grace of God. Psalm 103.10 says that the Lord has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That's what grace is. 
Grace isn't something that we demand from the Lord or earn from the Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So why were Ananias and Sapphira denied grace and made to pay for their sins with their lives? Well, ultimately, the answer to that question is left to the Lord himself. Romans 9.14, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Paul says you don't like that answer. Who are you to answer back to God? However, we might also benefit from seeing our text in light of the miracles which happened in the book of Acts. What are miracles? In essence, a miracle is a restoration back to the way things were supposed to be. They are a sign of God's restoration coming upon an individual or a situation which is broken, which was broken by the fall. In Acts 3, we read that account where Peter healed a man who had been crippled from birth. He'd been crippled for 40 years. And immediately after the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts 5, 15 through 16, it says this. So they, so that they brought, talking about the apostles now, so that they brought the sick out into the streets. Get a picture of this in Jerusalem now. Big city. They're bringing the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Do you have any conception of the magnitude of this? Miracles are reaffirmations of normativity. That is, of what was normal, of the good creation order as it's restored in Christ. They represent manifestations of the future kingdom within our present reality. A little snapshot, a little foretaste, a little appetizer for glory. That being the case, perhaps we should see the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira from this perspective as well. If the kingdom, if the coming of the kingdom means the restoration of mankind and creation and all that God chooses to bless with His grace, then it also means the destruction of evil. Without grace, we all deserve death. The destruction of evil is as real as the uh, real as the restoration of mankind and creation. So why them and not others? Well, that's not a question to which we are given an answer. Our only response to all of this should be there, but. For the grace of God, go I. And fourth, all of this produced a fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. According to the Apostle Paul, one of the biggest 
problems with the world is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Acts 5.11 says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Seems like a pretty good place to start. Even in paradise, we find the first recorded instance of any fear of God, for God had threatened Adam with death if he disobeyed. After Adam sinned, he was afraid and he hid. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Is this type of fear a proper part of what scriptures, the Scriptures require when they command us to fear God? Professor John Murray said, It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is a reason to be afraid of God. What if after Adam had sinned and he heard the voice of God in the garden, he came skipping up to God and said, Oh, how are you doing, God? Great to see you today. This kind of fear is right and proper in every situation where our condition makes us exposed to the righteous judgment of God. What about Christians? Should we have any of this aspect of the fear of God? Yes. Even before Adam sinned, this aspect of the fear of God was to be part of the deterrent from sin. God gave a command couched in a threat. Psalm 119, 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The Christian has a more accurate view of the holy character of God. Psalm 90, 11, who knows the power of your anger, for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. 1 Peter 1, 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Never get so irresponsibly happy and so flippantly sure of yourself that you forget who you're dealing with. As Ananias and Sapphira found out, your fortunes can suddenly be reversed by God. In Acts, Jesus is launching his kingdom and he's sending out clear messages to the church and to the world. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 say. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably out with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Reverence and awe. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. This is for real. You can't just go through the Bible and pick out the sweet Jesus parts, the precious moments. 
It's the whole package. Yes, the grace of God. It's the love of God. It's the, it, it is the beautiful salvation of the Lord. But it, all of that is with that dark, dark backdrop of fallen man and rebellion and hostility toward God. And God's grace is overcoming that. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the backdrop. And therefore, the church has to be sure it's taking care of its own business first. First Peter 4.17, For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so here in the middle of this story of the birth of the church and all that God is doing in glorious ways with thousands being converted to Christ and baptized and brought in, the devil is at work. And he's still at work. And we need to be on guard. He's seeking someone to devour. He'd like to devour you. He'd like to devour your children. This is a full-time job we've been given. We've been given all the tools. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Word of God. We've been given the church. We've been given instruction. We've been given fellowship and communion of the saints. We've been given everything. We've been given prayer. We've been given all that we need to resist the devil. But if we don't, he's an opportunist. So let us renew our fresh commitment to bow before a holy God, to fear the Lord, to take Him seriously, to take our own sin seriously, and unlike Ananias and Sapphira, to have no secret places, no hiding spots, nothing we're holding in reserve, and let us lay it before the Lord to meet the needs of the world, to meet the needs of the church for His glory. Let's pray. Our holy God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, teach us to fear Your name and to honor You with our mouths and our lives and our material possessions. You never hold back on Your promises. Help us likewise to keep our promises that we may be found to be good and faithful servants. You are a just and merciful God in all your judgments. Bless this church with peace and purity. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most dramatic events in the Old Testament for the Jews uh, was their crossing of the Red Sea. It was a story that was told over and over and over to their children and their children's children. And this story displayed God's glory in the destruction of Pharaoh's army. God directed the Israelites to a specific location where they were pinned in uh, between the sea and the Egyptians. No place to go. Scripture tells us that when the Israelites looked up and saw Pharaoh's elite forces marching after them, they were terrified and they complained bitterly against Moses for bringing them out to the desert to die. Exodus 14, verses 10 through 14, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, 
and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Uh, Why have you so dealt with us uh, to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it be better, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. For the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. What emotions would surge through you as you face this extreme danger? And later, as you experienced miraculous deliverance. Imagine seeing the Red Sea waters divided, opening a way for you and your family and two million others to walk through on dry ground. You step down into the seafloor with those walls of water towering above you on either side. They could come crashing down at any moment. Finally, you reach the far side, only to look back and see the Egyptians are following you. Suddenly, you watch those walls of water collapse and you witness an entire army drowning in the sea. Only a few hours, in a few hours you have experienced the highest degree of fear, apprehension, dismay, excitement, and overwhelming relief. However, the Israelites experienced something far more than relief and elation following the climax of that day's events. Listen to this, Exodus 14.31. Thus... Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. Remember the the people that were so afraid and terrified of the Egyptians? Now it says, so the people feared Jehovah and believed Jehovah and his servant Moses. That's what God has done throughout history for us in saving us from our sins, in rescuing us from Egypt, and in bringing us into his promised land. Let's eat together. O Lord, always be our support and strength in this this spiritual warfare wherein we have pledged today to engage anew against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have solemnly renounced our sins and expressed our desire above all things to be delivered from them. Be graciously pleased to accept these sincere intentions and desires and to consider our many weaknesses. Keep us steadfast in the resolutions we have made against every evil way. We implore the constant assistance of the Holy Spirit to subdue our corruptions and restrain all inordinate desires to make us delight in your ways and to replenish our souls with all Christian graces and virtues. 
As we examine our lives, may we find in ourselves a greater growth and steadfastness in the practice of our faith, greater striving daily against sin, and moving on from grace to grace and from virtue to virtue. May we live and die in your favor and obedience and be received into your eternal and glorious kingdom through the merits and mediation of your Son, Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you all. Amen.